series on the priests. And we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1 and chapter 2. Eventually, uh, this morning, that's where our, our food for the morning is coming from. So if you have a copy of God's Word, open up. If you uh, have it on your phone, go ahead and scroll. It's in the Old Testament, so scroll actually is a pretty good metaphor for it. Um, and if you don't have a copy, um, we have some blue covered copies in the back. You can slip your hand up in a moment or two and they'll grab a... a you'll, you'll need a minute for them to get it. Um, some of you may be wondering, I hope you know by now, why um, are we studying the priests? Um, and it's because uh, we love Jesus. It's because we love Jesus and the role of the Old Testament priests point to him. Uh, the term, Hebrew term for high priest in, in the Old Testament, which is found in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 21, is literally translated the priest, the anointed one. The priest, the anointed one. Now, those of you who kind of like, like languages, you're like, wow, anointed one is actually the term in Hebrew for Messiah. Yeah, it is. Really? So the, the high priest was actually called the anointed priest, the Messiah priest? Wow! Well, if you actually had met one of the high priests, you wouldn't be confused. No one who met them ever thought they were the Messiah. In fact, this is a fun way to spend your afternoon. I suggest this. Why don't you go home this afternoon, sit with your friends, and make a list of everyone in the Bible that the Lord killed. Thrilling, a thrilling afternoon ahead of you. Just make a list of the people that the Lord was like, that's enough of you, done, okay? And you will notice that the list has a disproportionate number of priests. Did things wrong, no, tried to get glory for themselves. The Lord's like, that's enough of you. But here we are, these priest messiahs pointed us to help us understand the Savior. So we're going to begin our sermon today with a trick question. It's a trick question. Who was the high priest during the reign of King David? It's a trick question. There were two. There were two high priests um, that were um, involved during King David's reign. One was Abiathar and one was Zadok, A-Z. Now, if you're, uh, if you're wondering if two high priests is a good thing, the answer is no. The answer is no. Two high priests are not a good thing. And as we've seen, the high priest is called to handle some really particular duties. He has this really singular role that's extremely important in the Old Testament. So this period of time marks a really like crazy historical anomaly. Two high priests... It represents a thrilling story because, as you can imagine, the drama is high, the conflict is fierce, and there's a lot on the line for the entire country of Israel. But I can see even in your faces, as I describe the story we're about to read, some of you, this is your face right now. Um, that seems like a billion miles away and very impractical, and I actually have some burdens right now that we just prayed about. I don't know if you forgot about that a minute ago, but I have some burdens right now. I got a semester coming up. There's syllabuses or syllabi, and what am I supposed to do with that? But can I ask you, please track with me this morning? Why? Why track with me? This seems so far away. Our entire culture screams at you all the time that the world revolves around you. 
Google assigns supercomputers to guess exactly what type of advertisement you would like to see. Did you know Google uses 1.5% of the electricity in the entire world? One company, 1.5% Google. What are they using that for? To help you. (laughs) Pandora assigns 400 different musical attributes and 2,000 focus traits to every song so that it can find for you songs that you would like to hear right now. YouTube provides you with two thumbs to evaluate videos that you see, giving you the power previously owned by Roman emperors. (laughs) Charlie bit my finger? No! (laughs) Our iPhone could only be more self-centered if it had a narcissism app. And if you don't like your iPhone, you can jailbreak it to make it even more you-centered. Amazing. Your social media accounts basically portray you as the star of your own reality show. This is the way our world works. In fact, they devised, I just heard this, um, social scientists devised a uh, quiz, a test for prisoners to evaluate narcissism among sociopaths. Like back in the 30s, whoa, and these people would just scorn like, wow, that's terrible. They, um, they've recently tried um, administering the same test to eight-year-olds. It's not looking good for us, guys. It's not looking good for the country. So here in church is one of the only places in the entire world that is not centered on you. And it's strange. Didn't like the songs we just sang? We didn't sing them for you, Slappy. (laughs) We sang for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there was a part in there that was like a soccer stadium thing with, oh, and oh. (laughs) And I'm more of a hymns person myself. Or I actually like that, uh, that soil and sun thing. That's kind of my vibe. And so it's not really for you. This is for Jesus Christ the Lord. You want a jumbotron and a cappuccino machine and a climbing wall for your kids? No thanks. We're actually trying to raise, I don't know if you know this, we're trying to raise missionaries down that hallway. I hope you know that. If that's like a startling fact to you, you should probably find a different church. Like, we are trying to raise champions for the kingdom. Why do we have people stand up and talk about we got to help refugees? Well, Because that's what we are about. Well, that seems really distant from me. I'm not really a refugee. Okay. Jesus was a refugee. That's why he went to Egypt that time. He got kicked out of his country. Remember, he got kicked out of Jerusalem when he was crucified. And Hebrews says to us, let's go outside of the city. Let's be refugees ourselves. When we meet refugees in the world, we're like, I know what that's about. I know what you're about. I have solidarity with you. We're together. We're trying to build against contramundo, against the entire world, a sense that our universe revolves around the Lord. And here's the kindest thing that I can say to many of you this morning. The universe is not centered on you. We are here to get blasted into orbit, to orbit around the Lord. It's a little disorienting at first. 
but the view is glorious. I invite you to come see it with me. Let's read 1 Kings. Our message this morning includes all of chapters 1 and 2, but to begin, we're going to read 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Prepare to feel disoriented. Stand to your feet. And for respect for the Lord's word and an expectation of what he'll say to us this morning. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run in front of him. His father, who is King David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. He confirmed conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah and Abathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimea, Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Hmm. Let's pray. Our Lord God, you dwell in unapproachable light, and we could never figure out anything about you unless you reveal it to us. So we ask this morning, loving God, that you would open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word so that we can see you, so that we can worship you, so we can understand you and love you better. In the name of your Son, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right, we're working through a big story today. Two chapters, this is a a Neil Martin attempt at a mount of text in a morning. It's a narrative, it's a story, and stories come in scenes. Stories come in scenes. Chapter 1 contains four large scenes, and we're going to call all of chapter 2 just sort of the aftermath of those scenes. We're going to walk through that. Here we go. Scene 1 starts in verse 1, and the scene is entitled, An Old King Cannot Warm Himself. Most stories end with the death of somebody, right? Think about it. Most stories end with the death of somebody. When Jacob and Joseph die, the book of Genesis ends. When Joshua dies, the book of Joshua ends. When Saul dies, the book of 1 Samuel ends. 1 Kings, however, begins at a deathbed. What's, what's, the, what's the author trying to tell us? We're faced right away with the startling fact that David is not... God's forever king. It looked like for a couple minutes there, maybe he was. It was pretty great for a bit, and then now he's going to die. He cannot keep the crown forever, and in fact, he cannot keep himself warm. Here's verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. Look in the text, look what David said to them. He didn't, actually. He didn't say anything. Verse 3, So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shunammite, and they brought her to the king, the young woman, was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. David here is shown in the weakest possible condition. The story is charged with sexuality, but not in a sordid way. In ancient times, one of the ways that a king 
displayed his political power was by fathering sons, providing heirs for the throne. In this story, considering that the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom is placed into the bed of the king, the fact that she is reduced to a human hot water bottle is embarrassing for the entire monarchy. The text clearly says in in verse 4 that David knew her not, which implies there was no intimacy there, but it also is clear that there were many things that clueless King David did not know. We're about to discover more of them. Scene 2, the one we read earlier, an old king cannot warm himself. A young imposter exalts himself. Scene two. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He sees what's happening. David's about to die. Somebody's going to be king. Should be me. Ironically, the name Adonijah, some of you can maybe even figure this out yourself. Adonai, master, Yah, like Yahweh, means um, Yahweh is master. But despite all of his efforts to be his own master, we're going to see later his life is a poster for Yahweh's true mastery. Well, how do you exalt yourself? How do you do that? How do you exalt yourself? Learn from a pro. Learn from Adonijah. First, end of verse 5, Adonijah puts on a show of resources. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run in front of him. This is just what his older brother Absalom did in 2 Samuel 15. Skip down to verses 7 and 8. How do you exalt yourself? With a show of resources. And second, a show of relationships. Look at the who's who that he gathers around himself. Verse 7. He confirmed with Joab, the son of Zariah, who's in charge of David's army. We've got to get some military strength. A little peek over to uh, the Middle East these days shows that's how you establish yourself as a kingdom. Get the army guy on your side. And with Abiathar, the priest. Abiathar, the priest, is a religious representative. He was a descendant of Eli. A descendant of Eli. Those of you who were here, Neil preached on that. Is that two weeks ago for you guys? Three weeks ago? Two weeks ago, says the nodding James Fry. Well, no, that is not a very high commendation. He is a descendant of Eli. Didn't God promise Eli's house something? Didn't God promise Eli, actually, um, this does not go well for you. Your entire house will never, will be cut off. Here's Abiathar, the priest, the descendant of Eli. You can guess where that's going. These three kids right here can know for a fact where that's going. It's going bloody and crazy in chapter 2. You're going to love it. They followed Adonijah and they helped him. But notice not everybody's invited to this party. Verse 8, Zadok, the priest... Okay, that's our guy. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimea and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. They're not called. Adonijah ignores God's prophet, Nathan, God's priest, Zadok, and God's, the, the representative of God's king, who is Benaniah, and he ignores David. He ignores the authority that God has placed for him. Adonijah has shown resources and relationship. Now it's time to have a show of religion. Look at this, verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fatted cattle. Well, that's good. Apparently he loves the Lord. 
Next words, by the serpent's stone. You do not need to be a biblical scholar to figure this out. That's bad. The serpent's stone. Make a list of snakes in the Bible. I'll wait. Any good examples in there? Oh, oh, no. So to have these sacrifices by the serpent stone with a high priest who was descended from Eli. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? Sure, he's a priest. He's the descendant of Eli. But 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31, God declared judgment against the house of Eli. So in one very basic sense, here's one of the main lessons for us this morning. The lesson of Zadok is this. Choose God's priest. Do not try to find your own way to God. Choose God's priest. Do not try to find your own way to God. Well, I think I know what I should do. God likes sacrifices. I've heard that. I can do sacrifices. I got my own uh, serpent stone right over here. No, don't do that. Um, I'd like to be king. That would be wonderful. I can get the army. Don't do that. Choose God's way. Declaring yourself king has never been a neutral move. We, move, we learned from 1 Chronicles 23 that David has, in fact, already appointed Solomon as the crown priest. Sorry, crown prince. It's going to be a great morning. I hope, that, I hope nobody from uh, Grand Valley lives across the street from me. We had like a party going on several nights this week. It was loud and raucous, and I'm running on four hours of sleep times three nights. Pray for me. That's not good. Public speaking, low sleep. I need the Lord right now. Like always. Thank you. Ah, So Adonijah is not trying to fill in a vacuum of authority here. It's a direct threat to the lives of his rivals. It's a direct threat against Solomon and his mother Bathsheba. But more than that, it's a threat against all of God's promises. It's a threat against God's promises to David about the royal dynasty, and Solomon specifically. This royal crisis is a life and death struggle for the kingdom of God. How will God's people respond? Which king will they serve? Scene one, a king cannot warm himself. Scene two, a young imposter exalts himself. Scene three, a loved queen defends the kingdom. The men are a disaster. A lady steps forward for the kingdom. Nathan says, this is verse 11. Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and clueless King David, I added the clueless part, clueless King David, our Lord, does not know, does not know it. Therefore, let me give you advice. You may save your life, the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my Lord, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why is Adonijah king? Then while you're still speaking with the king, I'll come in after you and confirm your words. Nathan's got a plan, and Bathsheba steps right into it. Verse 15, here she goes. So Bathsheba went into the king in his chamber. Now the king, in case you forgot 14 verses ago, the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. We knew that already. Why'd they put that in? Think of how humiliating that was for Bathsheba. She's the queen mother. 
She has a long relationship with David. She walks into his throne room. Who's there? Human hot water bottle. That's humiliating for her. But look at her response. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. He, she knows more than anybody, this is not a perfect man. She's respecting and honoring his royal office. The king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God. That's what the name Bathsheba means. You know, just because the famous story for her is so dark, people don't name daughters Bathsheba. I get it. Don't name your son, you know, Judas Iscariot. (laughs) Jezebel, out. Bathsheba, not that bad, actually. The name Bathsheba means daughter of the oath. Daughter of the oath. So here she comes, fulfilling her name. Bathsheba says, My Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, Solomon your son shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord, the clueless King David, do not know it. She gives him all the details. Let's pick up the story in verse 22. Nathan comes in. While she's still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and they told the king, here's Nathan the prophet. I love it when the Bible just helps you with stuff. I don't understand the Bible. You can, you can get this. Nathan came in. They told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. When he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Verses 24 to 27, Nathan's going to corroborate the story for us. Again, it's important to remember, this is not some personal favor that David made to Bathsheba. This promise he made to her about Solomon being on the throne was not royal pillow talk between a king and a queen, like some personal off-to-the-side deal. This was Bathsheba. What a picture of a courageous woman reminding David of God's covenantal promise. The oath that David made was because God had told him what to do. Bathsheba steps in and acts this way because she believes in the kingdom promises of God. The daughter of the oath reveals she is a daughter of the covenant. She believes God's promises that David spoke. And now she steps up and speaks them to her husband. Question. Have any kingdom promises been made to you? Have you heard any kingdom promises? Are you participating in any divinely ordered conspiracies? based on the promises of God. That's what Bathsheba and Nathan are doing. What an example to us. That brings us to scene four. Old king can't warm himself. Young imposter exalts himself. Um, a, A woman defends God's kingdom. Fourth, a new king is crowned. Then David answered. This is his first real words in the entire book. The book is called Kings. It starts off with not a great one. His first real words, he says, call Bathsheba to me. The the motif, the words call and invite is throughout this story. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore saying, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every uh, adversity. There it is again. As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, 
will I do this day? Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. That's an ironic thing to say to a person on their deathbed. May my Lord, King David, live forever. Ironic to say to a man who cannot get warm at this point in his life. But it's also Bathsheba's faith-filled declaration of God's promised eternal kingdom and David's everlasting life. David kicks into action. Look at verse 32. David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. They came before the king. Let's, we're going to do this thing right, David says. Remember Adonijah's henchman? It's an army guy and a priest-ish guy. For Solomon's coronation, David calls a godly prophet, Nathan, prophet, a rightful priest, Zadok, and a representative of the king, Benaiah. By involving these men, David unites his kingdom underneath the rule of God. In verses 33 through 37, David gives orders for Solomon to ride on the royal mule. Which I guess that's like the ancient like Air Force One or something. <laughs> Solomon is anointed and enthroned in public with a trumpet celebration. And this is no private coronation like Adonijah had with a few of his friends. This is God's rightful man being celebrated, not even by his own will. Have you noticed that? Adonijah says, I will exalt myself. What's Solomon been doing today? I don't know. He got grabbed by some people and put on a mule. People blew some trumpets. This is how it works with the Lord. Godly men are acting under the will of God. David gave the orders. But what are these people going to choose? Will they accept God's anointed king? Will they submit to his rule or... Will they choose to live by the rules of some other self-appointed kingdom? Verses 38 to 40 show us they choose God's king. With a loud celebratory roar that probably sounded like that O section of the song we sang earlier. (laughs) Verses 38 to 48. 40 show us that. At the beginning of this party means the end of the other party. Look at verse 41. Adonijah and his guests who were with him, heard this roar as they finished feasting. Oh, 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 oh. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? Oh, finally, after 40 verses, it's finally David who's not clueless. The trumpet had sounded with a blast. This is Peter um, Leithart's um, phrase. With a blast of eschatological doom. Verses 42 to 48, a messenger gives the bad news. Solomon's enthronement is a fact, and the greatness of Solomon's reign will surpass David's reign. Verse 49 says, Then all of the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. What what time is it right now? It just seems, oh, well... Off they go. Adonijah's party is over. His coronation dissolves. What happens when your party's over? The, the, the parties that we have in our lives of our own reign, of setting up our own lives, of being in control of our own stuff when the trumpet blows. What happens when our party is over? Will that trumpet blast for us be a blast of God's judgment? 
or a blast of victory of our king. The sound of God's king being crowned signals doom to all the imposters. And what about Adonijah himself? Look at verse 50. Kids, you're going to love this one. Adonijah feared Solomon. Yeah. Look at all these verbs. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Runs to the altar. He grabs the horns. There's horns on the four corners of the altar. He grabs one of the horns. It was told to Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. What's he doing? Why is he grabbing that thing? Exodus 21 tells us that if a person was wrongly um, accused, uh, if a person was accused with, um, of involuntary manslaughter is the term. Someone had died and it wasn't, this per- it wasn't an intentional death. When people came after them for vengeance, a person who was being accused of, invol- of murder, who was pleading involuntary manslaughter, could go and grab hold of the horns to be safe. But is that, is that what happened? Is that what happened? Is Adonijah guilty of involuntary, man- involuntary manslaughter? Adonijah was probably out of ideas. And there's no legal reason for him to do what he did. But King Solomon begins his reign with an act of clemency. He says, verse 52, If Adonijah will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. He came and paid homage to King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, Go to your house. I love like the simple sentences in the Bible. Go to your house. So the man who exalted himself has now been lowered. The man who crowned his head now bows his head to his younger brother. The man who gave orders is now sent home. Isaiah 2 verse 12 says, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So what should we make of this? What should we make of Adonijah's little uh, moment of surrender here? Is this his heart? Is this just some sort of outward sign? The next chapter will show us. Here's scene five. It's the aftermath. This is 1 Kings 2. First, chapter 2 begins with this conversation between David and Solomon. During this conversation, David exhorts Solomon to keep God's laws, to bless God's friends, and avenge God's enemies. And after this, in verses 10 through 12, David dies. Verse 13, the attention turns back to Adonijah. Here he comes. He is not done conniving and conspiring to take over the throne. He decides to take a page from Nathan's playbook. Wait, how did I get defeated? Bathsheba was the key? He decides to talk to Bathsheba. The outward form is going to be similar. The inner essence couldn't be more different. Nathan was motivated by the covenant promises of God. Adonijah acts, to be frank, satanically satanically. Why was he sacrificing at the serpent stone? Look at the way he's about to act. Look what I mean, verse 13. Adonijah approaches Bathsheba and asks for a favor. Verse 17, here's his words. He says, please ask King Solomon, he's not going to refuse you, to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Bathsheba says, very well, I will speak for you to the king. it's, It's hard for us to get this. It's hard for us to get this. But this is a clear attempt to take the kingdom away from Solomon. 
This is kind of like Adonijah asking if he can live in the Oval Office. Can I just, like, could that be mine? Uh, it's not quite like that, though. The Hebrew word for kingdom is grammatically and symbolically feminine. The king of Israel is the husband to his nation bride. Therefore, the king's brides actually represent the nation. So by coming to Bathsheba in an attempt to take the king's bride, he's trying to take the kingdom. And can you see this attempt to take the kingdom is sort of satanic. Look, he's approaching and he convinces Bathsheba, I mean Eve, to subvert God's kingdom and God's rule. That's kind of interesting. It'd be more interesting if Solomon was similar to Adam at all. Is it? Is Solomon similar to Adam at all? Is there some sort of like little thing we can read here? Well, the similarity is not exactly in our text this morning. It's in chapter 4 instead. You don't need to flip there. I'll hit a couple highlights for you if you want to head over there and just underline stuff. You're welcome to, but here's ways that Adam and Solomon are similar. Three. Adam's kingdom of Eden, in Genesis 2.14, it says it's marked by four rivers. One of them is the Euphrates. Well, in 1 Kings 4, it's describing Solomon's kingdom. And it says that he has peace on all sides, and one of the borders is the Euphrates. Second, Adam's kingdom of Eden describes the Garden of Eden had every tree, this is um, Genesis 2.9, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's how it described life in the garden. Trees, beautiful trees, great to eat, peaceful. Here's 1 Kings 4.25, under Solomon's reign. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree all the days of Solomon. That sounds like a garden. Adam, Genesis 2.19, he spends his time in the garden naming the animals. Solomon in 1 Kings 4.33 speaks of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He's running down a Genesis 1 sort of order. The text holds up Solomon as a type of Adam. But back to our text, because instead of falling for the trick like Adam did, Solomon is so much better. Instead of staying silent when approached by the temptation, Solomon speaks up, verse 23. Bathsheba comes in, um, Abishag for your uh, brother. Um, when King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me and more, also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Later on he's right, he says, Adonijah shall be put to death today. Solomon acts the way that we wish Adam had. Can you imagine that? You're in the garden. Snake comes to Eve, did God really say you would die if you ate the fruit? And Eve says, we're not supposed to even touch it. And um, Adam says, um, are you doubting God? Where's my hoe? Ah. Okay. Wouldn't that have been great? Instead, Solomon kills the tempter. So instead of getting kicked out of the garden... Solomon establishes the temple. We've talked about how the garden with its gate on the east is a picture of the temple, or maybe the temple with a gate on its east is actually a picture of the garden. 
Instead of forfeiting God's presence like Adam did, Solomon enjoys God's presence. This story continues where Solomon judges all of the henchmen following the advice of his father. In verse 26, he banishes Abiathar, which fulfills God's word to Eli in 1 Samuel 2. He executes the judgment that David called for against Joab in verses 28 to 35. He exiles Shimei, then executes him when he violates the terms of the deal. And then at the end of verse 46, we read the verse we've been waiting to see. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And so as we conclude this message... We're faced with a lot of different options. We've heard this is a big story, wide-ranging, with a lot of characters and a lot of machinations. And it's tempting in a sermon like that to play a little bit of the sermon game called Where's Waldo? Which is um, what you do is you um, look for yourself in the characters of the story. It's like, oh, am I self-exalting like Adonijah? I better watch out or I'll be humiliated. Am I vindictive like Joab? I gotta watch out or I'll be buried in the wilderness. Am I persecuted like Bathsheba and Nathan? Then I've gotta be courageous. I've gotta be like Zadok, not Abiathar, and so on and so on. And so, in one sense, the hero of our story this morning has been King Solomon, the godly king. We celebrate him for the wisdom that he displayed when he that he wrote for us in the book of Proverbs. We celebrate the way that he gave sinful Adonijah another chance to prove himself worthy and the way he stood for what was right. But, 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 at the same time, there's a little bell going off in the back of our heads right now. Solomon was not that great. Solomon, why Solomon died, just like clueless King David did. Solomon had some bad days. A lot of them. He took for himself all sorts of foreign queens, and not just to stay warm. He was polluted by them, and he worshipped all sorts of foreign idols, and he led the nation down the path to exile. It brings us to an important point. Throughout the Old Testament, we have these tensions. Some of you who do like um, more serious Bible study you'll notice authors will talk about the difference between the views of Chronicles and uh, Samuel and Kings. They're telling the same stories, but there'll be like discrepancies between the two of them. Chronicles will tell you a story about how great this king was, and Second Samuel will be like, he was a jerk. And so some people, critics of God's word, We'll try to play those against each other. See, you can't trust the Bible. This says he was good. This says he was bad. But there's something better going on than that. There's this tension throughout the Old Testament where one passage will ring out with this theme of what we need is a good king. That's what Chronicles says. What we need is a good king. And what Samuel and King says, and we've never had one. What we need is a good king And we've never had one. We've seen it throughout our series. What we need is a good priest. Look at all these laws. We need a good priest. And we've never had one. Nadab and Abihu, strange fire, dead. And it goes on. And we do it even now. What this church needs is a perfect pastor. 
but we don't have one. What we need is a gifted preacher this morning, and we don't have one. What we need, hopeful, we have hopeful expectations, heinous disappointment. In particular, you see the Psalms. They describe the anointed king that the people need, and you see these like, he's being crowned and celebrated, and you're thinking like, which king was that that they were talking about? Because I can't find him in there. They never got that king. And the tension builds and builds and builds until we get to Jesus. Because David died and Solomon died, but Jesus rose from the dead. Rose from the dead to give everlasting life to David and Solomon and all of his royal sons and daughters. Solomon had bad days where he disbelieved God and he trusted in idols. Jesus never did. Even on the cross, his final words, into your hands I commit my spirit. On his darkest day, he trusted God completely. Solomon took foreign queens for himself. Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church, Solomon is polluted by foreign queens. Jesus cleansed and sanctified his bride so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Solomon said Adonijah would be spared if he acted worthy. Jesus said that we'll be accepted even when we don't act worthy. I deeply appreciate James's prayer for me this morning. I have a tremendous sense of inadequacy when I'm preaching. Why? Because I, I don't have it. I have like a little, I got like three loaves and like five fish. And there's a lot of people here, okay? And I need the Lord. We all need him. But because the power is not from us, the pressure is not on us. Solomon said that he would be, uh, Adonijah would be spared if he acted worthy. Jesus knows that we're not worthy. He promises to accept us. He shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, he died for us. Solomon brought Adonijah down from the horns of the altar. Jesus climbs on top of the altar himself and sacrifices himself for our sins. He dies in our place. Solomon gives Adonijah one more chance. Jesus gives us more grace, James 4, 6 says. Solomon says to Adonijah, you can go home now. Jesus says to us, you can come home. Feel the difference there. You can go. You can come. Jesus, our high priest. Enter, Jesus says, into the joy of your master. Solomon led his people to worship all sorts of foreign idols. Jesus says in Psalm 22 and Hebrews 2, Jesus will tell of the Lord's name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, he will sing God's praise. Solomon led his people down the path to exile. Jesus is the way back to the Father. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. And here's our great hope. One day, he'll come again. And the trumpet will announce his call. 
And those who have aligned themselves for him and his kingdom will celebrate the rule of our king. And those who have set themselves up as their own kings will experience eschatological doom. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we love you. And we thank you that um, that there's no one else like you. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in mighty deeds, working wonders? There is no one like you, and it's our joy to worship the only one worthy of true worship. It's a joy to live our lives for the only one worthy of our submission. God, we thank you that because the the power is not in us, the pressure is not on us, we look to you for all of these things, God. Would you stir in our hearts um, um, plans and ideas and dreams that are based on your promises? Would you grow in our hearts and in our conversations uh, courage for living for you, doing radical things? God, refugees, why would we do that except that our lives are not about accumulating our own things or pursuing our own comfort, but about living for you and for your kingdom? Thank you that we're a part of that. We're your sons and we're your daughters. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.